0: Oh, my goodness, Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. this is strong opinion sports. The first episode of the week, the next one will be Friday. Uh, I am cross your fingers, everybody. Uh, I believe this is the second to last episode I will ever record. without a canopy behind me. The road trip is about to begin, finally, after months and months of delays. Um, (laughs) This canopy delay, waiting for the canopy behind me so I can sleep in my truck and drive around the country. Uh, The amount of money and time and emotional energy and stress it has cost me, this delay. Waiting and waiting and waiting. It's been one of the most difficult periods of my entire life. It's been very frustrating. Uh, We're almost at the end of it. We got one more episode without the canopy, maybe two, depending on when I record the the early episode next week. Maybe it's Monday night. Maybe I I get it next Tuesday night. So we'll see. Um, I hope we're doing very well. I'm excited. Life is good. I'm rested. I slept more this week than I normally do during a football weekend. Uh, It was a very busy weekend. A lot of stuff we have to talk about. Let's start with this. On Monday night football, the Chargers beat Denver 19 to 16 in overtime. It's a big win for L.A. Uh, it kind of keeps their season alive, the Chargers. They had a tough start to the year. Bunch of injuries across the board. Like, the Chargers have a really good roster on paper, but a lot of their best players have not been available this year. And even their starting quarterback, Justin Herbert, has been hurt. He's got banged up ribs. I can't even imagine, by the way, like, playing with ribs that way. I mean, every move I've heard when you mess up your ribs hurts, like breathing and twisting and turning, and I, he's probably got some kind of painkiller shot, but I just, I really feel for Justin Herbert. I really admire the effort, him playing through the injury. Uh, week two, they lost to Kansas City 27-24. Justin gets hurt. The first game after that injury, they lost to Jacksonville. It was an ugly game, 38-10. So despite kind of a weird start, lots of injuries, two early losses, L.A. finds themselves at 4-2, which is a massive deal. They've had a lot of close wins. They, you know, 24-19 over Vegas, 30-28 to 28 over Cleveland, uh, now 19-16 to 16 in overtime over Denver. Uh, it's been a weird year, but I know a lot of the stress in the Chargers franchise in the last couple years has been their inability to win close games. Say what you want, it's been an ugly year so far, but they are winning these close games, and that's kind of cool. Uh, L.A. plays Seattle next week. Then they have a bye week. Hopefully, they can use that bye week to get healthy. Uh, I would imagine Chargers fans and the team in general isn't feeling great. Uh, they got to get healthy, but they survived the rough start. They are 4-2. I think all things considered, 4-2 is pretty good for L.A. Uh, and, again, at least they're winning close games, which in the past they haven't done. Now, Denver. Um the Broncos are 2-4, and four, and I am ready to say now six games in, they 1,000% hired the wrong head coach, Nathaniel Hackett. I don't know how long he's going to last. I, I'm open to him changing my mind. I would love to see him turn it around and suddenly go from a bad head coach to a great head coach. I have never seen a transformation like that where a coach has gone from awful to suddenly being really good, but I, I hey, if that happens, great. It's nothing personal. Like Nathaniel Hackett seems like a very fine human being and Denver's defense. They're actually playing pretty well. They they've stopped a lot of great quarterbacks and every quarterback they've played, they've caused problems for the problem in Denver, unfortunately, is the offense and uh, you know, and maybe it's not all on Russell Wilson. I think there's been problem all over the place, but Nathaniel Hackett, their head coach is supposed to be an offensive head coach. Russ hasn't been very good. I know that. But the routes have also been bad. Protection has been bad. It looks like the team doesn't know the offense very well. When your players don't know the offense, when the routes are bad, when protection is bad, when every area of your offense is bad, I'm sorry, you can't just blanket statement blame the quarterback. It's also coaching. And that's what's going on in Denver. The coaching isn't very good on offense. Uh, Mike McDaniel is in Miami. He's a first-time head coach. Miami, is not having problems on offense the same way Denver's having. Miami actually looks well-coached and pretty good. So don't tell me he's a first-year head coach who's never done it before. No, no, I've seen a lot of first-year head coaches do well. Matt LaFleur went to Green Bay and went 13-3 and and went to the NFC title game in year one. So it's not like you can't do well as a first-year head coach. That's just not true. Denver's problem is they hired the wrong head coach. They hired a guy, I think, honestly, they hired Nathaniel Hackett, the former Green Bay quarterback coach, hoping that they could um, you know, entice Aaron Rodgers to come be with them. I guess he was the offensive coordinator in Green Bay. I, I can't imagine Nathaniel Hackett being an offensive coordinator. I'm like, I ha- this guy's an offensive guru, a genius. Like, what are you talking about? I clearly Matt LaFleur did a lot of heavy lifting in green Bay, him and Aaron Rodgers, because this guy can't organize anybody. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, Russ started the game really well on Monday night, by the way, he started 10 for 10 passing with 116 yards and a touchdown. But after that moment, the first quarter, basically Russ was good after that. Uh, Russ finished 5-for-18 with only 72 yards and no touchdowns. Russ is not perfect, man. I, I blame the coach. Nathaniel Hackett's the problem. But let's talk about uh, some of the stuff that really sticks out in my mind from this game. Uh, first of all, there's the most damning play in the entire game for Russell Wilson. It's an early third and two. And Russ had a clean pocket. He had a tight end Wide open over the middle. It's third and two, five yards downfield. Your tight end in the middle of the field, sitting right in front of Russ, right in the middle of the field, wide open. Doesn't see him. Doesn't throw him the ball. Uh, I don't know how that happens. It's either Russ doesn't know the offense very well, or you just are predetermining something. It's it's baffling and it's unbelievable that Russ doesn't seem to know the offense very well. But it's also unbelievable that you can be a guy who I have talked about as a potential Hall of Fame quarterback. Russ has been incredible most of his career. You're a, a perennial pro bowler. You're, you're the man. You can't miss that easy completion on third and two right in front of you. Not only did he miss the completion and not see a guy right open, he actually took a sack. It's horrible. And Russ does not seem to know the protections in Denver. Like, he isn't aware when the offensive line doesn't have enough bodies to pick up a blitz. Uh, and I I wonder, is Russ not involved in protections? Maybe they're like, hey, you're a new quarterback. You're learning. You got enough on your plate anyway. We're going to let the center take care of protections. But then maybe Russ isn't aware when, um, like, he, he does it. You know, if there are six people blitzing the quarterback and you only have five people in protection— Russ has to know there's an extra guy coming free, coming after the quarterback. You got to get rid of the football. It appears like he doesn't know that. And I wonder, is it all in the center? Does Russ not have an understanding of what's going on protection-wise? That's crazy to me. Like, that that cannot be true, right? But I, I don't know. I—I I, What I've seen so far from Denver has been so bad, I feel like anything could be possible. I want to say, if I was a defense playing against the Denver Broncos, I would blitz them with no mercy. I would just come after the quarterback over and over and over again. They do not have the ability to pick up a blitz at all. And there there's so many ways to explain what that means. First of all, um, if there's a missed assignment, Russ does not appear to know uh, when the offensive line is overloaded. Also, Russ has been able to unidentify when there's a guy coming free. He, he for some reason doesn't use his legs very much this year. I don't know if Russ is aging and just isn't the athlete he used to be, but we used to see Russell Wilson escape sacks like Houdini and make all kinds of crazy plays. He's not doing that this year. And it's not only that he isn't um, able physically to avoid plays. He's also just choosing not to run at certain times. And I'm like, I don't... The times when he chooses to run versus when he chooses not to run are baffling and confusing. And I think Russ clearly doesn't have very much identity as a quarterback right now. Like he isn't aware of who he is as a player and he's lost a lot of his understanding of what made him great, I think. I think it's a confidence problem. I think it's him trying to be something he's not, which is more of a pocket quarterback. And clearly Russ's confidence is all shaken and I think really truly he's forgotten a lot of what made him a once great quarterback. Play calling also really has not helped Russell Wilson though. Uh, Denver is regularly in third and long because of penalties on the offensive line, holding, false starts, all kinds of stuff. You know, Russell Wilson loves to go on two and use a hard count. The problem is his offensive line just cannot hold their water. They're unable to uh, avoid jumping off sides. And and then regularly in third and long, Denver will be third and nine, third and eight, third and 11. And they've got no built-in hot route with (laughs) – their play call. So a guy will come free. Russ has to get rid of the ball quickly, except, oh, yeah, no one's looking for the football. There's no shallow crosser. There's no slant. There's nothing where Russ can, if there's a blitz and a man comes free, he can get the ball out of his hands quickly to someone running across the field or underneath. That's baffling. Like how How, how is Nathaniel Hackett supposed to be an offensive genius or this great offensive coach when, I mean, I, I watch Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, Matt LaFleur, Mike McDaniel, Uh, Zach Taylor, coach after coach, at least when there's a blitzer, they've got a built-in hot route. Every play has one where you find something quick to get the ball out of your hands so that if they do blitz, you got an outlet. Denver doesn't seem to be doing that almost ever. Um, Now, this game ended in such an ugly way in overtime. It's baffling. Uh, Both teams had multiple chances to put together a drive, and they just couldn't. You saw four three and outs, four punts. The game only ended. I mean, this game... Would have been a tie 16-16, to 16, I actually really believe. Uh, except that Denver muffed a punt, which gave L.A. 1st and 10 on the 28-yard line in field goal range. It handed the Chargers really good field position. They kicked a field goal. They won 19-16. to 16. And it makes sense because neither offense could score. You know, it basically said, to like, who's going to make a play here? And unfortunately, the play was Denver screwing up on a punt, giving L.A. a victory, basically. It's such a shame uh, to see what the Broncos' offense is doing because Denver's defense is actually playing really well. They've caused every quarterback they've played against problems, even some of the the better ones. And they're just not getting any run support. It's like a pitcher that has a great game and allows only three hits and they lose one to nothing. It, it's just baffling. Denver's offense is last in points per game in the NFL It's really, truly horrible. And again, it goes back to it starts with coaching. The coaching is not good. Players don't seem to know the system very well. Uh, They cannot pick up blitzes. There are no built-in hot routes. Russ has having, I I truly believe, an identity crisis. He doesn't know what makes him great as a player, doesn't know when to run, when to stay in the pocket. He doesn't know the system very well. He's missing people wide open. That third and two is killer. And, And Denver gave Russell Wilson a... Massive contract. He's not going to go anywhere. He's got a five-year, like $200 and i believe it's $35 million. It could be more. It could be 45 I don't remember exactly, but it's 200 and something, $5 million. Russ ain't going anywhere anytime soon. He's got a five-year deal. So if Denver wants to solve their problems, they need a coach who can not only run the offense better, but can help Russell Wilson and fix their offense. I, I think that guy might be Sean Payton in Denver. Uh, I don't know, probably, if I were Sean Payton, I don't know that I would want to work with Russell Wilson. I'd be watching from wherever he, whatever studio he's working at this weekend going, ah, Russ, kind of weird, kind of, you know, I don't know that Russ, personality-wise, is someone I would want to work with, actually. I think he would drive me nuts. He, he seems kind of annoying to be around, to be totally honest. That's not great. Uh, and I, I think if that opportunity... Uh, is gonna to go to some young coach who's trying to prove themselves. It's gonna be another guy similar to Nathaniel Hackett who is eager for the opportunity. I think Mike McDaniel's a great allegory. A guy who, you know, hasn't been a head coach before, who's kind of an offensive whiz kid and wants to prove himself. With that, you know, Denver was hoping Nathaniel Hackett was going to be that guy. Clearly, clearly, uh, he has not been. I have an open mind. I am I am so willing for Nathaniel Hackett to change my mind and do better, but it does not appear like that's going to happen at all. All right, uh, let's go backwards in time. On Sunday night football, the Eagles beat Dallas twenty six to seventeen. Philly is six and zero. I would call the Eagles the best team in the NFC right now. However, uh, Philly aside, the story of this football game is Cowboys quarterback, Cowboys backup quarterback, Cooper Rush. He was 18 for 38 passing, 181 yards, one touchdown, three interceptions. Uh, You lose a tough game to a good team Philly. And I I really think in a weird way, this game was a gift to Dallas and their owner, Jerry Jones, because they were 4-0 with Cooper Rush as their starting quarterback. He was their backup quarterback, by the way. And when your backup quarterback is winning and your starting quarterback is coming off an injury and the longer he's out, the more healthy he is, it's hard to justify benching your backup who's playing well and winning games. He was winning. But uh, Dak Prescott, your starting quarterback, is now healthy enough to play. He has a $160 million contract. It's also hard to justify Dak Prescott sitting on the bench. So now uh, Cooper Rush struggling against Philly I think is actually a gift for Dallas because it makes it easier to go back to Dak Prescott. I-, I give a tip of the cap to Cooper Rush. Dude, backup of the year. Like seriously, it's not every day you see a backup quarterback come in and play well, let alone go 4-0, and 4-1 now as a starting quarterback. Um, to go 4-1 and while Dak Prescott is out hurt, It's such a good job. I mean, I I really want, I hope that's not lost here, that Cooper Rush did an incredible job running the offense, holding the boat together, uh, keeping things afloat, basically, until Dak Prescott comes back. I personally don't feel great about Dak Prescott. I think he's fine. I made a video where the title recently was like, literally, Dak is mid. Like, he's fine. He's not amazing. He's totally just a decent, fine quarterback. Uh, but Jerry Jones and the Cowboys front office is glad that the quarterback situation was made a lot simple, simpler on Sunday night with Cooper Rush having a bad game. And I, I think, again, that's exactly what needed to happen. You, now you can go back to Dak Prescott. It's a smooth transition. You can justify it. Everyone goes, yeah, well, we lost a game to the best team in the NFC and our offense didn't score enough. Our quarterback got three turnovers. Uh, between you and me, I don't know that Dak can do better, but Dallas is hoping he can, and they're hoping he's the difference in that game, and you can at least make that argument to your locker room, to your team, and your fan base and say, look, Cooper Rush did awesome, but maybe Dak helps us win that game, and so now I, I just go back to this. I really think Cooper Rush having a bad game in a weird way was a good thing for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, you know who does have a quarterback controversy? It's not necessarily Dallas. I think there there was one briefly. The New England Patriots have a quarterback controversy. Mac Jones, the Patriots starting quarterback, in the first three games started the year with a 1 and 2 record. Uh the Patriots actually started the year 1 and 3 because week uh 4 they started Brian Hoyer at quarterback. More importantly though, to start the year, Mac Jones has two touchdowns and five interceptions. And at least four of the five interceptions I, none of them were great interceptions. Four of the five were clearly bad decisions. I thought one of them was a ball One-on-one coverage, a jump ball to Devontae Parker. You kind of got unlucky. I can live with that decision-making. But four of the five were either a bad throw or a bad decision. And the last two weeks, the Patriots have started a rookie quarterback, Bailey Zappi, a fourth-round pick out of Western Kentucky. He's been their starting quarterback. He threw 62 touchdown passes last year in college, by the way. Now, in the NFL, Bailey Zappi is 2-0 as the patriots starting quarterback he's got four touchdown passes and one interception i think you could argue that bailey zappi has been better than mac jones he's more mobile he's also not only 2 and 0 as a starter but he's played and started two dominant wins where they won 29 to nothing over detroit they won 38 to 15 over cleveland is, is Bailey Zappi, Tom Brady and Mac Jones? Remember, uh, Drew Bledsoe was the franchise quarterback in new England. He was the the top pick and the guy. And then this little known backup quarterback, Tom Brady kind of took his job and became arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. At least the most successful quarterback of all time. Mac Jones is the first round pick. He's your franchise quarterback and Bailey Zappy's come in and done pretty well. And, I, it's kind of a hilarious, weird thing. Could this? I don't know that it's going to happen. I, I don't know. Could it really happen that twice during Bill Belichick's career, a backup quarterback has come in and been better than the franchise quarterback in New England? That's that's insanity, right? And I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. But just, I want to say that one more time. Could Bailey Zappi be Tom Bradying Mac Jones? Is that possible? Like that's wild. And. This past weekend, Bailey Zappi was 24 for 34 passing with 309 yards and two touchdowns. No interceptions, no turnovers. I would love, love, love to see the Patriots let Bailey Zappi keep playing. Let it play out. Let's see what happens here. Mac Jones is recovering from a high ankle uh, sprain. That's a really painful injury. I've had friends who have had a high ankle sprain. It hurts like hell. It hurts to walk. Like people don't realize that's not a, that's not, it's not a normal sprain. Like that's one that is hard to walk off. And it takes a while till you are healthy and feel good. Uh, New England plays Chicago next week and Chicago's got a really solid defense. I'm rooting for this, man. I want to see Bailey Zappi play against Chicago. It would be a really interesting and good test for him also, by the way, Chicago is struggling on offense. I, I can see New England ending up 3-0 with Bailey Zappi as their starting quarterback. I, I want it to happen because I want to see him play against a good defense, but that's also dangerous waters because it's a very winnable game. And, and then what do you say if your starting quarterbacks 1-2 and two with two touchdowns and five interceptions and Bailey Zappi's playing well, he's 3-0? I, I just want to learn, you know, the longer this goes on with Bailey Zappi, the, the more... Information we can gather and we can kind of figure out is this a fluke? Are they just throwing screen passes? Is I mean, he has been doing that. He's been a lot of dink and dunk, a lot of short stuff, a lot of screen passes. He hasn't been dominating throwing the football, but he's made a lot of good throws. And while they're running the ball and playing good defense, Bailey Zappi's executing at a high level. I think he's more decisive. He gets the ball out quicker. He again, he is a little more mobile. He can move around. I just the more we see of Bailey Zappi, the easier it will be to determine. Can this dude play or is it a fluke? And I believe either way, the Patriots definitely have a quarterback controversy. Uh, Mac Jones is only in his second year. It's not like he's a longtime established quarterback. This isn't Peyton Manning. This isn't Tom Brady. This isn't even Dak Prescott, really. And Dak Prescott is at risk of losing his job or was briefly to a backup quarterback. Like, If Dak Prescott can go through a quarterback controversy, even briefly— Definitely Mac Jones can, and I know that Mac Jones took the Patriots to the playoffs as a rookie, and and, you know, maybe that, I'm sure that counts for something, but he also lost his offensive coordinator, Josh McDaniels. He started the year badly. I just, I'll say this one more time. I I really hope the Patriots allow things to play out with Bailey Zappi. Keep it going until he plays bad. I want to see this, I want to see where this goes, because... By the way, that could be next week. Bailey Zappi could play bad against Chicago. And then you're like, well, we've seen enough. Back to Mac Jones. But why why end it early? And the longer you let Mac Jones sit, the more healthy he will be when he returns. I don't know, man. I think it's really fascinating. But I want to affirm the Patriots have a quarterback controversy here. Bailey Zappi is getting a lot of support on social media. He's 2-0, he's played well, and I think he might be 3-0 after next week against Chicago. So, keep your eye on the Patriots quarterback situation. During NFL Week 6, the Jets beat the Packers 27-10. It was a massive, massive win for the Jets. The game was in Green Bay, so the Jets went on the road at Lambeau Field and beat Aaron Rodgers, and the Green Bay Packers. The Jets are now 4-2, 3-0, by the way, with Zach Wilson as their starting quarterback. Now, Zach Wilson, the Jets' young quarterback, wasn't dominant in this football game. He just kind of played a solid, clean game, made good decisions, did well. It was an all-around team effort and, and a team win here. Here's the big story from this game, though. Green Bay could not get anything going on offense in this football. The Packers receivers could not win and there was no separation. It was a massive problem. The, you know, I I think it says a little bit about the Jets that their defense did well enough to shut down Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay. The defense was making plays, like shout out to the Jets, but I think it says even more about the Green Bay Packers. Basically, in order for Green Bay to move the ball, Aaron Rodgers had to be superhuman on Sunday. The only touchdown drive that Green Bay put together was made possible because of two penalties on the Jets' defense on third down that kept the drive alive. Other than that, one drive, Green Bay could not do anything all day on offense. It was briefly a seven-point game. It was 17-10. to 10. Uh, You know, the Packers were able to score on that drive where the Jets handed them two first downs on penalties. Again, that made it 17-10. And then... The Jets put together a really, really good touchdown drive. That gave them a 24-10 lead. And emotionally, 24-10 for the Green Bay Packers. I thought that was kind of demoralizing. You know, down one score. I was watching live. I'm like, you know what? It feels like one score, one touchdown. If something happens here, maybe Zach Wilson throws an interception. There's a muff punt. Like, if if Green Bay catches a break, it's a tie game here. But when the Jets had a two-touchdown lead. It felt insurmountable, given the way the Packers' offense had been doing all day. And that says a lot. How bad are the Packers if they have Aaron Rodgers at quarterback and yet still being down two touchdowns to the Jets feels like an insurmountable lead? I was watching live. I'm like, this feels like a game the Packers have no shot in. And you always, in the back of your mind, are like, well, they have Aaron Rodgers, but nothing was working, man. Like, no, no one's open... Nothing was going well. One of the only good throws, you know, completions they had all day was literally Aaron throwing someone open on a back shoulder fade. Like, I, I get I, I don't know that you can ask enough of Aaron Rodgers to just every single play make superhuman throws. I just, that's not a sustainable offense. No one's getting open. No one's getting separation. I'm telling you, the Packers' lack of a receiving weapon is becoming a real problem. They let Devontae Adams walk away. Well, I guess they tried. He wanted a trade. They drafted Christian Watson. Uh, not doing a lot. Green Bay is three and three right now. Their division rival, the Minnesota Vikings, are five and one. They lead the NFC North. And the next two games are big for Green Bay because they play at Washington against a backup quarterback. You have to win that game. But then you play at Buffalo against a great Bills team and a Super Bowl favorite. I think it's very possible that two weeks from now, Green Bay is going to be four and four, which isn't great, by the way. You know, Packers head coach Matt Lafleur has only ever lost four games one time. He's won 13 games in each of the three years he's been the Packers head coach. They went 13 and three, 13 and three, and 13 and four. So going four and four with a whole rest of your year to to win 13 games, that's a that's a really troubling start to the year. And you know clearly Matt LaFleur is on track for the worst record he's had during his time coaching in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers and uh, I just I go back to this man the Packers lack of a true receiving threat is really really costing them all right um let's go back in time and I I like got whisper I'm like hey Hey, guys, what's up? So I didn't mean to, like—if you're listening, you're, like, probably spit at your coffee. You're like, what's going on? Is Zach about to, like—we don't, don't need to go there, but the ASMR Zach will not come out. Uh, let's go back in time. I want to talk about Thursday night football. Last week on Thursday night, Washington beat Chicago 12-7. to 7. It was another—another another ugly game on Amazon Prime. I, I almost— you will never get me to feel bad for Amazon and Jeff Bezos, but man, I'm getting close. I'm like, eh, these are horrible football games every week. It's just getting worse and worse. But the reason why I need to go back to Thursday night is I I just have to talk about Chicago. I need to talk about the Bears offense. They are such a frustrating team to watch. Um, they are trying to get their second year quarterback, Justin Fields, going And I just do not understand the play calling from Bears offensive coordinator, Luke Getze. Chicago has a struggling offensive line and a really, really athletic, highly mobile quarterback, Justin Fields, who runs basically better than a lot of running backs in the NFL, to be totally honest. like, There's not a lot of guys I would rather have with the football in their hands at quarterback than Justin Fields. Maybe Josh Allen, maybe Lamar Jackson. And then Justin Fields, and then I would even go down to college and say Anthony Richardson's probably a great runner too at Florida. Uh, not, I mean, I Kyler Murray is a great runner, but like Justin Fields is one of the best, not only runners at quarterback, but maybe best runners with the football in his hands in the entire NFL period. And I do not understand why there are not more plays designed to get Justin Fields on the move and outside of the pocket. In fact, Luke Getze appears to be totally against leaning into Justin Fields' strength as a quarterback, which is his ability to run. And there are two moments in particular to me that watching on Thursday drove me crazy. I have to talk about them. I can't move on until I talk about this. One was on a third and one with 11 minutes left in the game, and I I was like, man— how about a perfect time to call a bootleg? You fake the run inside. It's third and short. Then you boot Justin Fields outside of the pocket on the perimeter, where he can either run for a first down. It's, you need one yard, or he can throw. It's a it's a beautiful opportunity to run a bootleg. And I you know I think the best guy running a bootleg in the NFL is Josh Allen, the quarterback in Buffalo, because he can run for power, he can run people over, he can also throw. He's great throwing on the run. And I think one of the other guys, uh, Lamar Jackson's great at running bootlegs, and so is Justin Fields because of his ability to run. Defenders are put in a bind because do I suck up to the line of scrimmage and try to stop Justin Fields running? Because if I do that and I leave my assignment, I've got a receiver wide open. It's a conundrum. What do you do? And instead of calling a bootleg on third and one with 11 minutes left, I am so... F- oh, i fired up. I'm really... I'm, I was, dude, I was watching on Thursday night, and I was about ready to pull my hair out. I'm like, what are you doing? Instead of, (laughs) for some reason, instead of calling a bootleg, the Bears called a straight drop back pass on third and one. And Justin Fields got sacked, again, with a struggling offensive line and a quarterback who runs better than almost anyone in the NFL. I was like, what are we doing, guys? We're not calling a bootleg on third and one, 11 minutes left in the game, in a winnable game. Why do you have Justin Fields if you're not going to use his ability to run the football? I know Luke Getzey didn't draft him, but you would think when he took the job, he's like, hey, you know the best thing about coaching Justin Fields? That running ability, apparently not. I don't know what he's doing. Later at the end of the game, Chicago had the ball first and goal on the five-yard line with 52 seconds left in the game down five points you need a touchdown to win and again they just refused to move the pocket and get Justin Fields on the perimeter by the way in this game Justin Fields ran the ball for 88 yards he was the Bears leading rusher and in fact I would say the number one thing we learned on Thursday night against Washington is that you do not want to play man coverage against Justin Fields not because he's going to shred you throwing the ball and going to throw people open and beat man coverage. But because if you play man coverage against Justin Fields, defenders are turning their back to the quarterback. They're focused on their man. And when Justin Fields takes off to run, there's no one to stop him. Unless you put a quarterback spy. And, and also, to be honest, even if you do that, he might make your QB spy miss, to be totally honest. I mean, he's, he's just that great of a runner. But if you play man coverage against Justin Fields, you're going to allow him to run for tons and tons of yards. And so to be third and one with 11 minutes left or or first and goal on the five-yard line, 52 seconds left, you need a touchdown in a huge situation. For (laughs) Chicago to not call any kind of sprint out or bootleg drove me up a wall. I couldn't believe it. Now, if you're playing against Chicago and you're a defense, play zone coverage because I I think that's what Justin is struggling with. You're uh, challenging him to find throwing windows against it's easy when you play a man coverage for a quarterback. It's pretty easy to identify. He's got him one-on-one coverage. Find your best matchup. Zone coverage is a lot more difficult for a young quarterback at the NFL level. Uh, and also, if you play man coverage, you're inviting Justin Fields to run all over you. Now, let's be clear. Coaching is driving me nuts in Chicago. I don't know what the heck Luke Getzey is doing. I know I almost said it worse. Um, but I don't want to come out and make it sound like Justin Fields is perfect and is doing everything right because he's not. Like, Justin Fields is leaving a lot to be desired. There was a third and three in the second quarter where he took a shot deep down the right sideline to Darnell Mooney and had a wide open shallow crosser that would have been a first down. Didn't see him, didn't throw him the ball. That's a problem. It's That's a Russell Wilson level mistake. It's very similar to that play Russ had on Monday night. We are like, dude, you have an easy first down right in front of you. You can't miss that. And, and hopefully that's a detail that, Justin Fields is not missing by the end of this year because as time goes on, Chicago's going to get, you know, less and less gracious. And I I just wonder, is Chicago going to run out of patience before Justin Fields figures it out? Because I think there's potential there, man. Like his ability to run is incredible. He's done some good stuff throwing. You got to be patient and let him grow and learn in the offense. Remember, it's also, Justin Fields is not only on a team with a bad offensive line, not a lot of great receiving weapons. Your best receiver, Darnell Mooney, is like 140 pounds. Like he's a tiny guy. He's also learning a new offensive system. It's his second year in the NFL and his second system in the NFL. That, that's not great. I mean, Justin Fields isn't exactly being set up to succeed to the highest uh, of standards. And also, when he's that talented, I think you got to give the guy a lot of room to grow. Like, say, hey, the potential's there. Sit back, let coaches work. Hopefully you get a good coach who understands his abilities are running the football. Um, Gosh, I'm really hung up on that. But I I think you you want to give a lot of patience to Justin Fields. Now, second and goal in general on Thursday night last week was rough for Justin Fields. Um, On his first second and goal situation, he had a ball tipped at the line of scrimmage wasn't exactly, tipped is the wrong way to put that, but it it got bounced up in the air and picked off. Really what happened was he had Cole Komet open in the end zone, and he just threw the ball into a defensive lineman's helmet. That's not great. I don't love that, but hey, like I can live with that one because his second time on second and goal was even worse. Justin Fields had a wide open receiver, should have been a touchdown. He made a bad throw. Awful stuff. It's a great play call. They run like an orbit motion. They fake the inside handoff. You have your tight end wide open down the, the right side of the end zone. Great play call. Receiver wide open in the end zone. And a bad throw. You can't have that. I'm sorry. Hey, I will defend Justin Fields a lot. There's a lot of things I'll say. Hey, this is going badly. This is going badly. I don't know that he's being set up to succeed. But you can't miss a wide open touchdown on second and goal. Also, he took a sack early on first and 10 where... He had a dig route, wide open, and wide open is the wrong word, but like open where there's a vendor behind him, guys running a dig uh, across the field. That's open in the NFL. You got to pull the trigger and throw the football. He didn't, and instead he took a sack on first and 10. Like There are things that Justin Fields is not doing good enough. So Bears quarterback Justin Fields isn't playing good enough. He's missing reads. He's missing throws, but he's also... Super, super talented. And occasionally he does stuff that makes me go, whoa, that's, uh, that's special. Wow. I mean, the guy, like I said, Justin Fields runs the ball better than some running backs in the NFL. He's still in progress. You got to give it time. You got to give him patience. But I think that opens up an interesting conversation. How much time and patience should you give? a young quarterback and when do you give up on your young quarterback like how long is too long to support a young quarterback i would almost say that justin fields with a new coach and learning a new offense you almost extend your time even farther because when it's one thing if justin fields got brought in with a rookie head coach who was an offensive genius and they worked really well together but to fire the coach you got drafted by having to learn a new system when you're already a young quarterback behind the eight ball that's a tough thing i think you got to move the goalpost even farther back for Justin Fields, but I think for the most part, for the most part, I don't want to make a blanket statement here, but generally, you should give young quarterbacks in the NFL two years, and then year three is when you start to raise your expectations. I think especially with guys with a lot of potential, you just if you have a lot of talent and a lot of natural physical ability, I think that gives you even more time. And I would give even more patience to that guy. Like Josh Allen's first year in Buffalo, he threw 10 touchdowns and 12 interceptions. Can you imagine if after one year, Buffalo said, well, this guy's awful. Let's move on. Can you imagine? Like they didn't do that. Clearly they made the playoffs in their second year with him as their starting quarterback, but like good thing. Buffalo was patient because now he's maybe the best quarterback in the entire NFL. I think the only reasons you should give up on a quarterback in the first two years of their career is if the guy has off the field problems, uh, or if the guy has no potential at all, he's very limited. He's physically not very good. Or if you get a better opportunity, um, I think of actually Gardner Minshew in Jacksonville. Gardner Minshew was doing well, but he's got limited potential. He doesn't have a great arm and Jacksonville had the opportunity to draft Trevor Lawrence. I think Gardner Minshew is a quarterback in the NFL who could win. If you put him on a great football team, I think he could do what Cooper Rush did in Dallas. Go 4-1, and win a lot of games. But Trevor Lawrence has more potential. He's a better opportunity. And Gardner Minshew is a little bit limited. So I understood that. Arizona. They gave up. Arizona gave up on Josh Rosen, the quarterback at UCLA, after just one year. And they did that because they were able to draft Kyler Murray number one overall. And in my opinion... That's a better opportunity and the right move. You get Kyler Murray, a special talent, who's got a ton of physical gifts. That's a better opportunity than having Josh Rosen as your starting quarterback. Uh, I hate to bring up this. You know, I, I, I say everything I'm about to say with a lot of respect. I don't want to speak ill of someone who died. But I'm trying to find an example of a quarterback who had problems off the field. Uh, Jamarcus Russell comes to mind. But the most recent one I can think of where a team gave up on a quarterback after one year May he forever rest in peace as Dwayne Haskins. Washington had problems with Dwayne Haskins off the field. And they moved on. They very quickly got rid of the guy. And they were probably right to move on. I've talked about how he died. It's it's really sad. It's one of the most um, moving stories in football. And I don't mean to um, step over his grave. But I would also go back and say for an example of a team that, hey, the guy had off the field problems. That might be. Washington with Dwayne Haskins, or even, uh, I would say, Johnny Manziel in Cleveland. But if your young quarterback in year one is having problems off the field, I I think it's justified to move on and find a different option. Now, as I look around the NFL right now, here are guys who I think deserve patience, who haven't been around long enough um, to really come down hard on them. I think of Trevor Lawrence in Jacksonville. Had an up-and-down kind of rollercoaster every year. Some good games, some bad games. But I can forgive the bad because he's in year two of his career. He's also got a new head coach and a new offense, and he's in Jacksonville. He had to endure Urban Meyer. I can live with that. Justin Fields in Chicago. Dude, the guy is so talented. And hopefully someday his coaches recognize, hey, the dude's special running the football. We're going to call sprint outs. We're going to call bootlegs. We're going to get the guy on the perimeter running the football. I don't know why Luke Getze isn't doing that. Third and one last week on Thursday night killed me. First and goal killed me. I don't know when they're going to figure out, hey, maybe straight drop back passes with our guy who's got an incredible ability to run and a bad offensive line isn't exactly the thing we should be leaning into on every single critical down. I would give a lot of patience to Justin Fields, probably more than you think, because not only is he a young quarterback with a lot of potential, Uh, I mean, the potential is so high, like I'm willing to wait for him to figure it out because what he can do is special. I'll wait longer than almost anyone because I really believe he works hard. He's going to figure it out. And what could be achieved with his talent level is so special if you can figure it out. But also remember, Justin Fields is in year two of his career with his second head coach. He's learning another offensive system. That's not great. Uh, I think of Kenny Pickett in Pittsburgh. Dude, the guy's halfway through his rookie year, not even halfway through his rookie year. Be patient with Kenny Pickett. Uh, Give him time. I've seen enough from Kenny Pickett to believe in him. I think he's awesome. I think he's going to be good in time. But you got to give him enough time to learn the offense, learn the intricacies, and catch up to the NFL speed. I think Kenny Pickett's going to be totally fine. But it's year one. I think that's the easiest guy to argue is Kenny Pickett. Another guy who I think deserves tons of patience is Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson, by the way, he's three0 right now, as a starting quarterback with the Jets. It's been a kind of a roller coaster, ups and downs, kind of a roller coaster rookie year, and some, he's been hurt early on in a second year, but like the, the potential is there. Like the best plays of Zach Wilson are good enough to make me go, "You know what? Let's endure some, some suffering here, because what could be is special. And I, I go back to this. Zach Wilson works hard. Justin Fields works hard. Trevor Lawrence. Kenny Pickett, these are guys who, with good coaching and patience, I don't think these are lazy human beings. I I do not believe you get to where they are in football. And plus, I've seen the trajectory. People have a hard time understanding that quarterbacks can get better. The ultimate example of that is the quarterback in Philly, Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts, from year one of Alabama to where he is now. Alabama, then Oklahoma, then the NFL— Every year I have watched Jalen Hurts play football. He's gotten better as a quarterback. You have to acknowledge that. When people work their tails off, they get better. Justin Fields is going to get better. I believe in that wholeheartedly. He's come a long way from being the backup quarterback at Georgia to where he is now. But you got to give him patience. And if you allow time for Justin Fields to develop, if you don't, I know it's painful to watch your team the Chicago Bears lose. I know it's frustrating when he's got receivers open and he's missing them or not seeing them. But you got to let it gel. You got to let it work. Because if you give Justin Fields patience, what could be is incredible. The the potential is there. So, um, you know, Davis Mills is a guy in his second year quarterback in Houston. He is one of the ones where I'd say, I don't know that you need to have patience for Davis Mills. You know, if they have a chance to draft Bryce Young, the quarterback out of Alabama... That's a better opportunity in my mind. Davis Mills has limited potential. He's not a quarterback who can run around and make crazy plays. Bryce Young is. That's a Josh Rosen, Tyler Murray situation in my mind. Uh, I think you might be able to make a similar argument with Mac Jones in New England. Mac Jones has done well. But if Mac Jones isn't making good decisions, he's not valuable to your team anymore because... He's not physically gifted. He can't run around and make crazy special plays. He has made the playoffs, and that might be enough potential shown to warrant patience. I don't want to have the Mac Jones debate, but if if Mac Jones does get benched to Bailey Zappi, who's playing better and making better decisions, I, I wouldn't be shocked, and I, I would actually defend the Patriots there because Mac Jones isn't special physically. He can't run around and make crazy special plays and do stuff that other quarterbacks simply cannot do. Justin Fields does stuff that can't be replicated. Mac Jones? I think you can find Mac Jones, a a guy who can't run around and and make good decisions. There might be a lot of those running around. How special really is Mac Jones? I I say that respectfully, but eh, he's fine. Now, here are the NFL quarterbacks who are past their window of patience, I would call it. These are guys who have been around for a while. And now it's time to deliver. I think of Jared Goff in Detroit. Hey, man, I'm so sorry you got traded to Detroit. That's rough. However, you've been in the NFL long enough, it's time to figure it out. Carson Wentz in Washington. Philly, New England, Philly, Indy, now Washington. I have a lot of um, empathy for Carson Wentz. I thought he got unjustly screwed over in Indy he was not the problem with that football team he maybe could have played better at times but there was a lot of things going wrong in Indy and Carson Wentz got blamed for all of it kind of scapegoated however I can't tell you what Carson Wentz does well he's good at getting hurt a lot but outside of that like "Ah, what are we doing with Carson Wentz I'm waiting for the guy to play well he's often not available he's often injured he's got a decent receiving core now in Washington Jahan Dotson, Terry McLaurin, man, it's still kind of middling. Daniel Jones in New York is another guy who I have empathy for Daniel Jones. He's had a, a really rough go of things, man. Not a great offensive line, uh, turmoil at head coach. However, Daniel Jones has been around the NFL long enough that it's time to figure it out. And and good news is Giants are 5-1. and one. I can't tell you what happened. I'm not sure why the camera cut out. I don't know what happened, but here we are. We're back. Uh, let's talk about Daniel Jones. Good news for Daniel Jones is that Daniel Jones is 5-1 right now, doing good enough to win, playing fairly clean football, Um, and I would say Daniel Jones is doing good enough right now. He should remain the starting quarterback in New York because they have much bigger problems. Now, Daniel Jones, I would rather have Bryce Young than Daniel Jones, but Daniel Jones, I think, is doing fine, but again— He's at that point where it's been long enough in his NFL career where he's got to start delivering. He's at the end of the rope where patience is wearing thin, and I think deservedly so. Then I think of Tua in Miami. Tua is in year three of his NFL career. And Joe Burrow took Cincinnati to the Super Bowl last year in year two. Justin Herbert might be 19-19 right now as a starting quarterback in the NFL, but he's shown a lot of physical gifts. He's one of the better quarterbacks. He's also playing hurt. Tua has deserved skepticism in Miami. People are saying, ah, you're not physically very good. It's time for Tua to deliver. I, I would, I'm would, i willing to give Tua one more year after this year. I'll, I'll extend what happened because he got a new head coach and stuff. But actually, no, I actually, no, I wouldn't. Here's why you got to not have patience for Tua. He's got Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddell, an awesome head coach. Miami's put all their eggs in one basket on, and really every resource they possibly could to support their young quarterback, Tua. It either works or it doesn't. Good news is Tua's been playing pretty well. Without him, they look Miami's losing games, actually. Looks like Tua's working out. But if you're not patient for Tua, I understand, and I'm with you, because it's time for Tua to deliver. This whole, The whole theme of the year for Miami this year was Put up or shut up. Tua's got to figure it out, and we got to decide whether he can play or not because the team is too good to be wasted by the quarterback who can't play. And here's why I think another reason why you got to really lack patience with Tua, and I wouldn't even say lack patience, I would say raise your expectations for Tua. Let's say Tua doesn't work this year. You got to go find another quarterback because, again, Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell cannot have the prime years of their career wasted by the quarterback who isn't playing well. I'll go back to this. Tua is playing well. But here's another reason why you can't be patient with Tua. He's not that physically gifted. Tua isn't doing a lot of stuff that you can't, you know, maybe replace physically. He's not running around and making crazy plays. Now, the thing Tua does well that he never gets credit for, his anticipation is out the wazoo. He's just making all kinds of throws before receivers are breaking, finding windows. He's great at that. And that's... I would even comp him to Drew Brees. Like that's Drew Brees level decision-making and timing. So I I like Tua. I think he's playing well. He's justifying his ability, his space. But if Tua has a bad rest of the year, I would actually say Miami should move on and find a new quarterback because you cannot waste the best years of Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell with a quarterback who not only isn't playing well, but is physically not the most dominant quarterback. That being said, Tua's playing well. But I think you need to have expectations for Tua because of where he is in the NFL and his time. So anyone lacking patience for Tua, I'm with you. But I I think right now he's answering the call and playing well. I, you know, there's another tier, though, another level of guys who, um, when a quarterback gets paid a ton of money, uh, expectations go up even more. I start expecting you to perform at a really high level and win games. I think of Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, Dak Prescott. uh, Joe Flacco was once one of these guys who, who got paid a ton of money and didn't work out and lost his job. When you start signing big contracts, like over $150 million, not only do you need to play well, you need to win games and you need to play well in big moments and be available. You can't be injured all the time. You could argue that these three quarterbacks, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, and Dak Prescott, have failed the criteria for a guy being paid a ton of money, at least recently. They haven't delivered in big moments recently. They're not winning a ton of games. They've been injured. They, they all have different problems. But if you're going to make a, over $150 million, my expectations go through the roof for you. And recently, not great. Kirk Cousins is another guy. He signed a a much more, I would say, modest contract early to start. You remember, he signed like an $83 million contract. But Kirk is getting paid a ton of money now. Thankfully, Minnesota's 5-1. and one. But I'm, I don't have any patience for Kirk Cousins. If he doesn't play well, he's out of there. Like, they got Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, and an awesome head coach. Kirk has to play well and win. He's 5-1 and one right now. He's answering the call. But these are people who, when you make a ton of money, and you've been around the league for a while, expectations have to go up. So I, I say all that to say... I am not a pushover. I When quarterbacks aren't delivering, I come down hard on them. But you got to be patient. You got to be fair. I went on a whole rant for one episode a long time ago about how people often forget Drew Brees, his entire career almost didn't happen. He was in San Diego with the Chargers, and they said, Ah, we're going to discard you, throw you in the trash, replace you with Phillip Rivers. He went to New Orleans and his career got resurrected with Sean Payton. But Drew Brees was like really, really close to never happening, never having the Hall of Fame career he had. That's why you have to be patient with quarterbacks because when a young quarterback is given time and and allowed to grow and succeed, great things can happen, but you got to give them a proper amount of support. So especially early on, you know, I think of uh, Zach Wilson, Kenny Pickett, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence. Be patient and allow quarterbacks time to succeed. But at some point, enough is enough. And when enough is enough. When they've been around the league, when they've had lots of opportunities to succeed, Mitchell Trubisky was allowed more than enough time in Chicago. He couldn't make it work. So I I want to be clear. I will defend guys like Justin Fields who are making mistakes and missing receivers who are open Because I don't think he's getting great coaching, he's learning a new system, and he's young, and the potential is there. You give time and allow Justin Fields room to grow. But at some point, like two years from now, if Justin Fields is still making the mistakes he's making today, I will say, "Ah, I've waited long enough. But you got to allow Justin Fields room to grow and get better. And unfortunately, uh, life is not fair. The more physically gifted and more talented you are, the longer that rope is, the more patience and time I will give you. Um, and that's just because if you figure out with Justin Fields, that's pretty special. Justin Fields can do stuff running the football that Davis Mills, the quarterback in Houston, simply cannot. Okay. um, <laughs> Dude, I think it's a great episode. You know, it's today I'm recording on very early Wednesday morning. I tentatively, I want to start recording twice a week, hopefully Monday night, Tuesday morning, hopefully not Wednesday morning every week. But I like, I like taking my time and gathering all of my thoughts and all this information. I think it makes a better episode. I think we're kind of between a rock and a hard place where is this a podcast or a YouTube show? It's kind of both. Uh, And I, I hope I can properly serve both the YouTube audience and the podcast audience but I, 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 I like doing this show where I've taken my time. I've, I've taken uh, time to think and gather all my thoughts. And maybe a little later is a little bit better. I, I can't do any later than Wednesday morning because into Thursday, people move on to the next week. But I, I like doing a weekend recap like on a Tuesday. I think that might be the way forward for the show. We'll do like a Tuesday and a Friday episode. It allows me to have time with my family and, and take my time and make a better show and actually sleep at night and not pull all-nighters. Um this episode's going very well. I like it. Kind of experimenting. Like I feel bad. I, I this show has gone through a lot of uh stress and turmoil as I've been literally homeless and living in my friends' houses and waiting for my canopy to arrive so I can leave on a road trip. But I've been like, i may maybe taking risks a little bit with this show, um, trying new stuff and trying to figure it out. But I I I'm trying to figure out the best way forward for this show because I, I want to make a good product. I don't want to burn out. And I, I want to enjoy it. And this is pretty great. I think taking my time and making a well-thought-out episode um, twice a week, I think is the way forward for this show. And I feel good about that. Anyway, back to Thursday night briefly. The Bears wore orange helmets and orange jerseys on Thursday night football. Uh, I just want to say real quick, that would have been way cooler with gray pants. I think the white pants with the orange was kind of ugly and not a great look. Just saying, I think the... Gray pants with that orange uh, helmet, orange jersey would have looked really cool. And I may or may not have designed that in Madden before, actually. Um, Also, Chicago handed Washington a touchdown in this game. It was quite a gift. Chicago muffed a punt, gave Washington first and goal on the six yard line on Thursday night. Massive mistake. It handed Washington the victory, basically. Uh, I mean, now Chicago had an opportunity first and goal, 52 seconds left. They couldn't score. I think some of that blame has to go on the offensive coordinator, Luke Getze. But I want to talk about Washington for a moment because Washington is such a boring offense to watch. Carson Wentz is all banged up. His ankles messed up. He fractured his finger. Carson Wentz isn't even going to play week seven. Like Washington on Thursday night, Curtis Samuel couldn't catch what should have been a touchdown. Um, They're just boring to watch. Their play design isn't creative. And I cannot for the life of me figure out what Carson Wentz is good at, honestly, other than getting hurt, he doesn't run well. He's not very accurate. Seems like he's always hurt. I, you know, next week Washington is going to start Taylor Hennicky, their backup quarterback, because Carson's hurt. And I honestly wonder is Taylor Hennicky an upgrade over Carson Wentz? No, no shade on Carson, man. I thought I, I've defended him. I thought he got unfairly blamed in Indy, but I still don't know what he's good at. Like I, I can't figure it out. So I, I'm just. Washington is one of the few teams in the NFL. I just, I'm, I don't care. I'm bored. I, I want to care. I want to be interested, but I, Washington's got interesting things off the field more than on the field, to be totally honest. One cool story in Washington, by the way. Let's talk about it. Washington's running back, Brian Robinson, is a rookie third-round pick out of Alabama. On Thursday, he had 17 carries for 60 yards and a touchdown. That's not even a story, though, by the way. Here's a story. On August 28th, <laughs> I'm not, I'm laughing out of discomfort. Um, Brian Robinson got shot twice in an attempted carjacking. Now, less than two months later on Thursday Night Football, he got his first ever NFL touchdown. That's wild to get shot and then two months later, less than two months later, be scoring touchdowns in the NFL. Unbelievable. So that's that's crazy thing number one in Washington. Here's the other thing that is actually very interesting about Washington. Uh, their owner, Daniel Snyder, got accused of sexual harassment by team employees. Now, apparently in retaliation, Daniel Snyder is gathering dirt on the other NFL owners so they don't force him to sell the team, which is just a bunch of billionaire crazy stuff. In fact, Jim Irsay, uh, the Colts owner, who's Jim Irsay is, is a little bit, uh, cavalier. You can get sound bites out of Jim Ursae that you can't get out of any other, um, you know, owner in the NFL. Jim Ursae just came out and said it. He's like, we got to get rid of this guy. He's like, we got to deal with it. We got to nip it in the bud. It doesn't represent us as owners. I would imagine Jim Ursay is one of the owners that doesn't have anything to hide, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I, you know, Dan Snyder is trying to gather dirt on the NFL owners so that if they try to vote him out of the league— He can threaten them with exposing information about them, which I believe is blackmail and illegal and not cool. But again, uh, when you're a billionaire, apparently the rules don't apply to you and you can do whatever you want. Seems like that's the—it's a huge problem with our country. Anyway, that feels almost too political. I, I despise. Like, let me just go on a tangent real quick. As I sit here in my pickup truck recording a podcast... I say this, I know it's kind of ironic. The economic divide in our country is like the biggest problem we have. And we don't talk about it. We talk, we argue with each other about all kinds of crazy stuff. Billionaires do bat crap level. I want to say batch, but I won't say it just insane stuff. And we just kind of gloss over it and ignore it. Um, but Jim Irsay is like all four voting Daniel Snyder out of the NFL uh, owners association. Apparently, Uh, They need 24 votes, and if they do that, they can force Daniel Snyder to sell the team. And Dan Snyder is, like, very much retaliating and trying to fight his way out of it. He said, I'm going to gather dirt. And what's interesting is this billionaire drama. uh, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones suddenly uh, had a very gentle tone in regards to Daniel Snyder. Like, as if he does have something to hide, which is very fascinating. Jerry Jones is like... Well, you know, like we've been, and I, okay, Jerry, okay, Jerry. Where are the bones in your closet that Daniel Snyder found? All right, um, let's move on. I, ugh, I despise that the billionaire class is like, I, yeah, we don't need to talk about it here. We'll talk about it on my other podcast. Actually, I'm talking. Um, by the way, I want to give a shout out to Mackenzie Salmon. Someone sent me a TikTok by her. Mackenzie Salmon, she had an idea on how to fix Thursday Night Football. Here's the idea. You add a second bye week to the regular season. Then teams only play on Thursday after a bye week. And by making the season 19 weeks long, everything gets pushed back a week, which would make the Super Bowl the third Sunday of February. Guess what's the first? uh, uh, So it would make the Super Bowl the third Sunday in February. And the Third, Monday of February every year is President's Day, which would mean that after a day of drinking and enjoying the Super Bowl, a lot of people would have a day off work, which sounds lovely to me. Get drunk, have a party. Like, I think, why isn't the Super Bowl a national holiday anyway? Like, let's lean into what it is. Let's get drunk. Let's party. Let's, I'm all for that. I think to be able to really let loose in the Super Bowl would be awesome. It's almost a crime that some people have to go to work on the Monday after the Super Bowl. It sounds amazing to make it the day before President's Day where the banks are closed and it's a federal holiday. Mackenzie um, Salmon, I salute you. It's a great idea. Also, here's what's really important here, by the way player safety. The thought of a two-week, two bye weeks in general, having two bye weeks during a regular season, it would split the season up into three parts. Even for teams that have an early bye week, you got more rest than normal, more rest and more recovery time. Uh, plus, it would give teams more time to prepare for Thursday night games. We definitely need that. Four days between playing on Sunday and playing on Thursday is not enough. And some coaches I know try to prepare, like they do a little bit of work the week before leading up to Thursday night. So that's like half the game plan is already in the week before. But it's it's a lot, man, to try to expect a team to prepare for a game in four days is insanity. And so Mackenzie Salmon, round of applause. Let's add an extra bye week during the season make the season 19 weeks long put the super bowl on the third sunday of february the day before president's day which would allow for the day after the super bowl to be a day off of work for most people and players that have more time to rest and recover you're playing 17 games i think two bye weeks outstanding that's that's amazing and i think great for players you'd have fewer injuries you'd have more time to rest less burnout i think it'd be good all around um i think it's a it's a good idea aside from the President's Day thing, but when you tell people they can get drunk on the Super Bowl, so drunk they don't have to work the next day, I think people are very excited about that. So, um, Mackenzie Salmon, well done by you. All right, uh, let's give a shout-out to the New York Giants. The Giants just beat the Ravens 24-20. to 20. It was a wild ending. The result is that the Giants are now 5-1. and one. For the second week in a row, I'm now saying that Brian Dable is coach of the year of the coach of the Giants, Brian Dable He is killing it. Daniel Jones played another solid game. Saquon Barkley looks a good again. This looks a good Saquon Barkley. Once again, um, looks good this year. He kind of, he had some injuries and sputtered. And now with Brian Dable calling plays, Saquon Barkley looks like a franchise running back and is awesome. Now Ravens led the Giants 20 to 10 in the fourth quarter. New York was down 10 points in the fourth quarter And the Giants came back and won. Lamar Jackson had two turnovers late in the game, uh, both in the fourth quarter, an interception and a fumble. Both were bad plays. The interception was worse. There was a bad snap. He's running around, extending the play, trying to keep it alive on third and six. And he threw the ball late over the middle and got picked off. That was awful. The fumble, like, it happens. That's not great, but whatever. I don't have a lot to say other than that. You know, it's, it's a crazy win. The way it went down at the end for the Giants was awesome. But what's going on in New York is very, very cool. The Giants are 5-1. and 5-1. and one. I did not expect that at all this year. Giants fans have hope, man. If you're a Giants fan, you're sitting at home going like, you know what? I don't know a lot of things, but I know we got the right head coach. That's a great feeling to have. First time in a while that you've been able to say that about the Giants. Uh, also, I was very happy for the Giants defensive coordinator, Don Wink Martindale. He beat his old team, the Ravens. They parted ways in January. In February, he got hired by the Giants. Cool moment for him. It had to feel good to beat your former team, the Baltimore Ravens. By the way, news broke that the Ravens have signed receiver Deshaun Jackson after that loss to the Giants. He's 35 years old. Deshaun Jackson will be 36 in December. Uh, It's worth noting that despite his age, the dude is still very fast. I watched him play for the Rams and the Raiders last year. He was getting open last year. Like, in year 14 the NFL, this is year 15 for him, he can run deep, he can get behind safeties, uh, I think he's good for the Ravens, because he extends the field, I mean, if you just have him run in a straight line every play, safeties have to respect that, because it will get open, and it just opens up the rest of your offense, it's awesome, um, I absolutely love Deshaun Jackson, not only because he legitimately is like a really awesome player who's somehow stayed in great shape and his speed is killer man but also in when i played madden and i still play i play madden like i think it's 14 i play madden 14 on my vita i live in a truck so if i'm gonna play video games it's got to be handheld right now i might get a gaming laptop like someday in like a year from now but for now we're on the switch and the vita i've been playing madden 14 number one trade i make in every franchise i make and I, i i love the old madden games better than the new ones deshaun jackson is young And he's the first trade I make. He's a dominant receiver in Madden. And I think he's still dangerous in the NFL today. I am very curious how this later stage in his career goes in Baltimore, but I I can't imagine it being anything other than him running in a straight line a lot and potentially getting open sometimes and creating more room for the rest of the Ravens offense, which is the ultimate goal here. I think Deshaun Jackson is going to create opportunities for guys like Rashad Bateman in Baltimore. And that's awesome. So, uh, Devin DuVernay in Baltimore I, I, it's all, I'm very excited I think this is actually a really cool underrated move and smart by the Ravens because like I said Deshaun Jackson can still run and you're going to make him run deep like 10 times a game and that's that's what he's going to do he's going to run sprints and it's going to be awesome <laughs> alright Um, I watched Buffalo beat Kansas City this past weekend Buffalo won 24-20 to 20 and I walked away thinking no offense to Philly Philly, they're 6-0. I would say they're the best team in the NFC. But Buffalo and Kansas City, these are the two best teams in football. The rules are different for the Bills and Kansas City because they've got Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. Here's the number one example in this game. Both teams scored before halftime in, like, a crazy ridiculous way. Buffalo was backed up 3rd and thirteen on their own one-yard line with a minute and 18 seconds left before halftime. And not only did they convert the first down, third and 13, on their own one-yard line, they went on to drive 99 yards for a touchdown in a minute. Buffalo scored with 16 seconds left in the second quarter, took the lead. And then guess what happened? Kansas City gets the ball. (laughs) At their own 28-yard line, first and 10, 12 seconds left before halftime. So Buffalo went 99 yards in a minute, Um, Kansas City in 12 seconds ran two plays. They drove into field goal range and kicked a 62-yard field goal with one second left before halftime. Dude, these teams are unreal. Like, I can't think of almost any other football team that gets the ball on their own 28-yard line, first and 10 with 12 seconds, and gets into field goal range other than Kansas City. But they did. And then they kicked a 62-yarder, which is ridiculous. These teams are different. They can do stuff that other teams simply cannot do. Um... Now, Buffalo won in Kansas City. That's something a lot of teams cannot do. I think that's going to matter a lot later in this year when it comes to playoff seeding. These two teams, though, it feels inevitable that Kansas City and Buffalo are going to meet again. Probably on the road to the Super Bowl. And one of these two teams is a Super Bowl favorite. I'm not sure. Probably Buffalo at this point. Uh, If the Super Bowl happened tomorrow, it would be either Kansas City or Buffalo against Philadelphia. We'll see how that plays out the rest of the year. Uh, but that's I, I like saying that now. Let's even say if the Super Bowl happened today, six weeks into the year, it'd be Philadelphia against Bills or Kansas City. We will see if that remains the rest of the year. I'm I'm very interested in that. Uh, now this offseason, Buffalo made a move to go get Von Miller, a pass rusher who gets after the quarterback, and it really paid off in this game. Von Miller put pressure on Patrick Mahomes in two key moments at the end of the game. Once it was on a third and six where Travis Kelsey was open, and Von Miller sacked Patrick Mahomes. That got Buffalo the ball back down 17-20. to They went on to score. And then later, Von Miller put pressure on Patrick Mahomes, made him throw the ball earlier than he wanted to. That led to the game-sealing interception where Mahomes got picked off by Buffalo. Uh, The Von Miller move paid off big time. And I hope he stays healthy for the long run because if Von Miller is healthy— We could see Buffalo win a Super Bowl. And I I feel for Buffalo's fan base, man. They lost four Super Bowls in a row in the 90s. And uh, I would not be disappointed at all to see Josh Allen and Buffalo win a Super Bowl this year. By the way, it's worth acknowledging Sunday during the Panthers game against the Rams, Carolina interim head coach Steve Wilkes sent receiver Robbie Anderson to the locker room mid-game. There was arguing. There was yelling. Robbie Anderson post game said he was mad that he didn't get targeted and was taken off the field on third down. And in the post game, he said like, look, I, I just want to win. I love football. I play football. Cause I love it. Not for the money, not for the fame. Cause I want to win. And I, I actually admire and respect that. I thought Robbie Anderson should get a haircut, but that's not here though. I think he's now I'm not against the style. Just, it's like very messy. It doesn't look great. Um, but that aside, <laughs> my roasting Robbie Anderson, I don't mean to like I, nothing against it. Um, Carolina lost to L.A. 24-10. to 10. Baker Mayfield didn't play. Sam Darnold didn't play. Both are hurt. The quarterbacks in this game, I feel for Robbie Anderson, man. He had P.J. Walker and Jacob Eason throwing him the football. And within 24 hours of being sent to the locker room, Carolina actually shipped Robbie Anderson away. They're like, hey, you got to get out of here. We're done. And uh, they traded Robbie Anderson to Carolina. Carolina got a 2024 20, sixth-round pick and a 2025 seventh-round pick for Robbie Anderson. So, Robbie Anderson no longer in Carolina. They got a sixth and a seventh-round pick for him. Robbie Anderson is in Arizona now playing with Kyla Murray, and it's actually kind of good timing because Arizona just lost Marquise Hollywood-Brown to an injury. He fractured his foot. He's out at least six to eight weeks. I I've heard it might be all year, but a foot fracture, we'll see. At least six weeks, Marquise is... You know, Brown is going to be out. Uh, Arizona plays New Orleans on Thursday night football. They're getting DeAndre Hopkins back. That's like the big storyline in that football game. Both teams are two and four. Arizona just lost to Seattle. Arizona's not doing well. And they're hoping, 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 hoping that DeAndre Hopkins can help save their season. We'll see. I would like that to be true. I'm not sure it will be. All right. Um, Something kind of weird happened in Pittsburgh this past weekend. The Steelers beat Tampa. Steelers beat Tampa 22-18. They got their first win since week one. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, my goodness, amazing. It's a great win for Kenny Pickett. And then I did more research and I watched the game and I was like, oh, that's not quite what happened. Kenny Pickett. Pittsburgh's rookie quarterback uh, did decent in this game. He was 11 for 18 passing with 67 yards and a touchdown. Nothing crazy, like at all. Not even close to like impressive, really. Just like oh, it's okay, it's fine. Like he's a rookie, good enough. But Kenny Pickett actually got knocked out of the game in the middle of the third quarter. He's got a concussion. He's in concussion protocol. And Mitchell Trubisky came off the bench, went nine for 12 passing with 144 yards and the go-ahead. I say we're already winning. They're winning 13 to 12, but the game-clinching touchdown, Trubisky won the game like that. Weird all around. Trubisky came in the game up 13 to 12. Again, had the game-sealing touchdown. And that's really kind of him being the perfect backup. When your starting quarterback goes down, you want your backup to come in and play well enough to win. He did that. Tampa scored to make it 18 to 20. Tampa couldn't get the two-point conversion, so the Steelers won. And... Weirdly enough, Trubisky was kind of the hero. And I walked away um wishing it had been Kenny Pickett, to be totally honest. That would have been simpler, would have been easier to explain to people. But no, uh Trubisky played well and won the game, and that's weird and awesome. And you know, Pittsburgh plays at Miami this next Sunday. Kenny Pickett's in concussion protocol. If Kenny Pickett's healthy, Mike Tomlin, the Steelers head coach, said he's gonna play, but We'll see, man. I don't know whether he's going to play or not. And it's going to be very, very, uh, fascinating to find out what happens. All right. I'm going to take a break real quick. I got to blow my nose. I'll be right back. Oh, right. We are back. Final topic of the day. Um, guys, I, I hope it's clear. I, am so happy in this truck. Like I, I don't know that I can properly explain my love for my pickup truck. It's an, an, it's an inanimate object, um, I spend like all of my time in this thing. And I don't think it's even possible for a lot of people to comprehend how comfortable of a office I have made this, but I have, it's crazy and it's awesome. And I love it. And I, I'm just really happy. I hope that's clear. I don't know if that is like across camera or if you're listening on iTunes, but um, this has been a, a weird journey, like trying to figure out how to build out my truck. We're so close to the end where I can finally like, Adventure in it Um, And I I could not feel better about the idea It's gone badly, let's be honest We're waiting on solar panels, we're waiting on the canopy Hopefully the canopy gets here Should be picking it up on Tuesday But man um, I am very much enjoying Being in the truck and working out of the truck And it's the most freeing and Lovely thing I've ever done in my entire life And it's very, very fulfilling to have my own Space in some weird way that's mine Um, Now let's talk about college football this past weekend in college football was awesome. It was college football week seven. There were three amazing games, and then more notable ones we'll talk about. But game number one was this: Tennessee beat Alabama. They knocked off Alabama. Alabama is now six and one, and Tennessee remains undefeated at six and zero. This was not only a massive win, but also an incredible game. Uh, Tennessee won fifty-two to forty-nine. Got a last-second field goal. The game was back and forth all game long. Like, Bama scored, Tennessee scored. It was just, like, a, a kind of a perfect game. It's exactly what I want. High-scoring, dramatic, a great finish, beautiful. Like, entertaining the entire way through. Every moment was tense and full of just rollercoaster of emotions. And Bama missed a 50-yard field goal with 15 seconds left in the game. And then Hendon Hooker and Tennessee made a... Crazy thing! They Tennessee had the ball on their own 32-yard line, first and ten, with 15 seconds left, and they had two plays. They threw an 18-yard pass and a 27-yard pass, and then kicked a 40-yard field goal as time expired for the win. It was crazy. It was Patrick Mahomes-esque, where you're like, "Bang, bang! Field goal, game over!" And you're like, "Did that really happen? Oh my gosh! Tennessee beat Alabama!" And they walked away with the goalposts, and it was chaos, man. I was so happy for Tennessee. The game was in Tennessee at Neyland Stadium. Maybe I want to go to Tennessee someday. I've never been there. I'm sure it's awesome and uh, really cool to see them win. It was just wild, man. Now, Bryce Young, Alabama's quarterback, played pretty well despite losing. He threw for 455 yards, had zero turnovers. Alabama's running back, Jameer Gibbs, was, you know, he's just incredible, man. He had 24 carries for 103 yards, three touchdowns. He also had 48 yards receiving. So, Jameer Gibbs is a stud. Uh, Bryce Young is incredible, probably going to be the first quarterback drafted, but the standout star of this football game is Tennessee receiver Jalen Hyatt. Uh, he had six catches. Listen to this again. Jalen Hyatt against Alabama had six catches for 207 yards, five touchdown catches. All but one of his catches was a touchdown. Are you kidding me? Ridiculous. Get an incredible game. Hendon Hooker, Tennessee's quarterback, 21 for 30 passing, 385 yards, three, yeah, sorry, Five touchdown passes, all of them to Jalen Hyatt. Had one interception on a ball that went high over his receiver's head. Um, It was Hendon Hooker's first and only, you know, interception of the year so far. Tennessee beat Alabama for the first time in 15 years. I can only imagine, if you're a Tennessee fan, think about this. There are people that are Tennessee fans that are alive that have never seen their team beat Alabama until this moment. If you're like 13 years old, you never saw it. You're watching with your dad and every year is misery and pain. And you're like, why does my team lose to Bama every year? I'm so traumatized. Well, things have changed. And I just can't imagine how frustrating that must have been. 15 years of losing to Alabama and not only losing, but them then winning like a national championship every what must have felt like every year. The hate or that must have festered between Tennessee and Alabama must have been real. And. You know, now you walk away, Tennessee and Georgia are both undefeated. And uh, both teams, Tennessee and Georgia, are in the SEC East, which means that only one of them can go to the SEC title game. You've got in the East, Tennessee and Georgia, in the West, Ole Miss and Alabama. Tennessee plays at Georgia on November 5th. And Georgia is the favorite, but Tennessee clearly has a shot. Now, I want to add this bit of commentary I didn't think Tennessee was going to beat Alabama. Not before the game, but during the game. Like During the game, I remember, um, you know, Hendon Hooker threw his first ever interception all year, and there were two plays where Hendon Hooker had receivers open deep downfield and missed. There was a fourth and sixth in the second quarter. He had a touchdown, had to be a perfect throw, but he missed it, and there was no touchdown. That felt like a big deal. And then in the third quarter, in a second and 13, he missed a receiver open deep. To have an interception, uh, and then two inaccurate throws that should have been probably touchdowns, if not massive gains, missed. Uh, felt like an just I felt like a thing that Tennessee couldn't be forgiven for. I, I can't believe they won in spite of that. And I would say that theoretically, that means Tennessee could have won by two more touchdowns. So it might not have even needed the drama it did. So I just I, I'm I'm surprised that Tennessee missed on two opportunities and had a pick and still found a way to win this game like they Alabama left a lot of room a lot of margin for error there by Tennessee and can you imagine if Hendon Hooker threw seven touchdowns against Alabama that might have been what happened if he hits on those two throws so I don't know man I was so happy for Tennessee great for them the stadium atmosphere was insane by the way Alabama had 17 penalties in this football game. The most ever penalties in the Nick Saban era actually was against Texas earlier this year. They had 15. They blew that out of the water. Alabama had 17 penalties against Tennessee in this game. Uh, I, that's the second time they've broke the record this year. And penalties are such an easy thing to point to that are very costly. Having 17 penalties, giving up 130 yards on 17 penalties, that's insane. And... uh a big reason why Alabama is now a one-loss football team. Okay, in no particular order, there are two more games that I found incredible during college football week seven. Game number two, Oklahoma State at TCU. The game was in Fort Worth. TCU won. This game was wild. Oklahoma led 30-16 to in the fourth quarter, and I thought for sure, man, Oklahoma State had all the momentum. I thought they were going to win this football game. TCU came back and TCU tied the game 30 to 30. Then TCU won in double overtime 43 to 40. And it was such a fun game. I, I just I thought that man, one of the biggest standouts in this game actually it's a weird thing to like hang you know get hung up on but my all-time favorite jersey is that TCU jersey they wore to win this game. The gray with the purple helmets, the red numbers. It's that's that's the best jersey. In all best uniform combination in all of football at any level. I love that uniform. Uh, this is why you watch Big Twelve football, man. It's, it's for games like this that go down to the wire. A lot of offense, a lot of scoring, double overtime. Oklahoma State is now five and one. TCU is now still undefeated, six and zero. And if the Big Twelve is going to get anyone in the college football playoff, it is now going to have to be TCU and. I think that's, that's worthy. I, I like watching TCU. They're really fun. They've given it. I've watched them two great games in a row now. At first at Kansas and they're now winning over Oklahoma State. And uh this is an exciting, exciting team to watch. I really enjoy watching TCU. Game number three, Utah beat USC. And I absolutely loved how this game ended. The mighty USC got beaten and it came down to fourth and goal from the one yard line. 48 seconds left. Utah had the ball. Down a touchdown. Not only did Utah score a touchdown with 48 seconds left on fourth and one, sorry, fourth and goal from the one yard line. Utah made it 41 to 42. And then USC still led by one point. So what did Utah decide to do? Utah went for a two point conversion. They're like, hey, let's end the game here. I love that decision because I would not want to go to overtime against USC with Caleb Williams. I'd be like, look, our offense has to keep up with their offense when everyone gets an equal opportunity. Let's just end the game here because they got a great quarterback, a Heisman Trophy candidate, a high-powered offense. I I just, I really admired the decision to go for it there. And I've talked about this before. In in the NFL, there have been a couple moments where teams had gone for it uh, for the two-point conversion at the end to avoid overtime. And I just, I think it's so frequently the right move because... If you're playing against a juggernaut, a really good football team, a great, especially a high-powered offense with a great quarterback, high-powered offenses with great quarterbacks win in overtime almost every time. If you can avoid overtime against that, you do it. And that's what Utah did. They went for two. It was ballsy. It won them the game. I love that so much, man. USC, the Trojans are now 6-1. The only undefeated team left in the Pac12 is UCLA, and the Pac12's hopes of making the college football playoff now are basically over. Every year the Pac12 beats up on itself and it's very entertaining, it's very fun. There's no dominant team in the Pac12, not really. So nationally they get hurt. but I just I hope it's clear like Pac12 football is a lot of fun to watch. It really is just a great product. every year, you don't have as many NFL stars, the future NFL players like you do in the SEC. And the, the level of passion from the fan base just isn't as much. But, um, man, it, it's a lot of fun. I have really thought that maybe this year, USC was going to be the dominant team in the Pac-12. And, nope, apparently not. They gave up 43 points to Utah, and they lost. Again, that moment. Going for two, Utah, that's an incredible moment. One of my favorite moments of the year in, in any level of football. And I just... Tip of the cap. It was awesome. By the way, shout out to Utah tight end, Dalton Kincaid. The dude dominated. This is Dalton Kincaid's stat line from that game against Utah. 16 catches. Your tight end had 16 catches against USC. 234 yards and a touchdown. That's George Kittle, Travis Kelsey type numbers, man. 16 catches, 234 yards from a tight end for a touchdown. Um, again, I just tip my cap to Utah. What an awesome performance. Gutsy call at the end and very, very entertaining. That is why I watch football right there for moments like that. Fourth and one, sorry, fourth and goal on the one yard line, 48 seconds left to score a touchdown. You could have tied the game, but instead they go for two to avoid overtime against a high powered USC offense. Like let's end it here. They did. They won. Chef's kiss. That is beautiful. Here are some other notable games from college football Week Seven. Michigan beat Penn State 41 to 17. It was close for a moment. There was a, a moment early uh, in the second quarter where Penn State led actually 14 to 13. In the end, Michigan dominated there. Uh, still undefeated, seven and zero. Penn State is now five and one. Clemson beat Florida State 34 to 28. It sounds worse than it is. Clemson actually was up 34 to 21. Then Florida State got a touchdown with two minutes left in the game. Clemson, they're 7-0. feel like they're on a path to the college football playoff pretty easily. Uh, Ole Miss is still undefeated. Ole Miss uh, beat Auburn 48-34. to Dude, Ole Miss against Auburn. Ole Miss ran for 448 yards. They had multiple backs, like three of them, with over 100 yards rushing. That's ridiculous. To run for 448 yards is crazy. Jackson Dartler quarterback only completed nine passes. That's all he really needed, needed to do in this game. Jackson Dart, nine completions for three touchdowns. What? What? And they ran for 448 yards? Crazy to me. Like, that's Ole Miss. Um, they play Alabama pretty soon. That's going to be very interesting. Syracuse is still undefeated. They beat NC State 24-9. NC State quarterback Devin Leary did not play. It's hard. To, like I know Syracuse is 6-0, but I don't really respect the schedule they've had so far. They do play at Clemson this next weekend. That's an opportunity to gain my respect. I think Clemson wins that game. Uh but still Syracuse are 6 and 0. They're bowl eligible. Good for them. That's very exciting. It's worth noting LSU beat Florida 45 to 35. Uh Kentucky also won again. They're back on track after losing two games in a row. Will Levis is back. Uh they beat Mississippi State 27 to 17. Here are the top 12 teams in college football, according to the Associated Press, after this past weekend. The number one team in college football is 7-0 Georgia. Number two is Ohio State. Not a shock. They are 6-0. Tennessee, after beating Alabama, they are 6-0. They are the number three team in college football. Number four is Michigan at 7-0. So that's two SEC teams and two Big Ten teams in the top four uh, right now in college football. Number five is Clemson at 7-0. Number six is Alabama at six and one after the loss to Tennessee. Ole Miss, they're seven and zero. They are the number seven team in college football. They play Alabama, I think, in two weeks. It's coming up pretty soon. I know it's it's like one of the next couple games, and it's going to be very interesting. Um, number eight right now is TCU at six and zero. They are the Big Twelves only hope of making the college football playoff. Number nine is six and zero UCLA. They are the Pac-Twelves only hope of making the college football playoff. Um We'll see TCU and UCLA, they have a long road ahead if they want to make it in. And I think one of them might even lose out to a one loss Alabama team, but we'll see. Um, The number 10 team in college football is Oregon. They're five and one. Their only loss is to to Georgia, excuse me, who's the number one team in the nation. That's why Oregon has one loss, but they're still the number 10 team in the country because their only loss is to a dominant Georgia football team. Oklahoma State, after losing to TCU, they're 5-1. They are the 11th team in the country. And USC uh, has fallen all the way to the number 12 team in the country after losing to Utah. Uh, It's worth noting, undefeated Syracuse is the 14th team in the country. Um, I think that's going to end when they play Clemson this next weekend. It was just a joy to watch college football this past weekend. Incredible moments. Tennessee beat beat Alabama. Uh, Utah going for two. Beating USC at the end of the game was just my favorite moment of college football so far. Maybe one of my favorite moments of the entire football season so far. And then that TCU-Oklahoma State game, going to double overtime. TCU came back in the fourth quarter. This college football week seven was incredible, and I loved it. And I'm really excited for this next weekend. And I just, you know, keep enjoying college football because the product right now is absolutely incredible. All right, guys. My name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I love you. I appreciate you. Uh, Breakfast is calling my name Breakfast. I'm going to upload the podcast. I love you. Hope you have a great day. Canopy next week. And we go on a road trip. We're going somewhere cool. I love you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great day. And bum, bam, we are done.